That was better than a commercial. <laughs> he knows how to do that. Uh, I want to talk to you about something not altogether uh, different than that last week. Dying and resurrection and who we are as the people of God. Uh, we're talking about the Enneagram tonight. We'll continue to over the next few weeks. One of the reasons we decided to do this is because of a conference we're hosting. I'm sure you've heard about it. On April 24th and 25th, Suzanne Stabil, who is the author of these two books I'll tell you about in a minute, uh, will be with us. We are hosting this conference in tandem with Second Presbyterian here in town, and we feel quite fortunate to have her. Uh, we expect a full house and the tickets are selling quickly. Uh, and they put a cap on 500, and so we're not far from that ceiling. So hear me say, if you want to come to this conference, uh, you better sign up quickly. But we thought as a lead up to that, and then we'll have a couple of weeks after that conference of Wednesday nights, that this would be a good refresher uh, for some of you, introduction for some of you, or deeper dive uh, for some of you. Uh, a few things about me. Uh, I am very much a skeptic of these sorts of things. I've taken all the diagnostic tests that you have, I'm sure. The Myers-Briggs. Well, what are some of the others? Strengths Finder. That's a new one for me. Disc. We, we don't lack for these tests that tell you who you are. And all of them, I think, try to simplify our very complex humanity. Uh, and so when I first heard about the Enneagram, I chuckled as uh, my skeptic began to play a little bit and went into it with a less than healthy dose of skepticism. But the more I read, the more I read the history of it, and the more I engaged the Enneagram, specifically when I read the chapter on my number, uh, I became much more of a believer. And I think there is the wisdom of the ages in the Enneagram, if I can say it that way. Next week I'm going to tell you more about the history of it. But just a brief uh, introduction, all three monotheistic religions in this world use the Enneagram. All three monotheistic religions in this world help shape and create the Enneagram. It is rooted in the wisdom of ancient people. And sometimes I find it staggering how wise the Enneagram is, how effective it is. And so Consider me exhibit A of someone who was a skeptic and now believes in the power of this. I want you to know I'm an amateur. I've just kind of done my own research on this. Uh, but as Andy said with his class a few weeks ago, the word amateur means, you know, you love a thing. And so if nothing else qualifies me to teach this, maybe just my affinity for the Enneagram does. The last thing I really want to say before we dig in is that it, it is a tool. And like any other tool that we have, a tool of the mind or a tool of the hand, the way it is used and the value of the thing depends largely upon the person wielding it. Uh, you can wield a tool, the same tool, uh, for different purposes and it have different power. Two different people can wield the same tool and have a different effect. The Enneagram demands something of you. It demands something of me. And the usage of it, the power of it, the effectiveness of it will depend largely upon the work we're willing to do, namely our own soul work. It's much easier for me to point at Ron Davis and say, you're a four, than it is for me to confess that I'm a nine and think about what that means. Um, so, I want to invite you on a hard journey, which is what the Enneagram has been for me. But most of the time when I look back at my life, any, any journey that was a good journey was a hard journey. So come into this over the next few weeks with that posture about yourself. 
One of the reasons I wanted to teach this class is because I also think we might have misunderstood the Enneagram a little bit in a big picture kind of way. So tonight I want to reintroduce it to you. We're not going to dig into the Enneagram until maybe the end of next week. It could even be two weeks from tonight because I think we have some work to do in understanding what this is and why it is of value to us. For our intents and purposes tonight, I'll tell you more next week, but the Enneagram is an ancient monastic tool. Monks have been using this for centuries. And for most of its history, you were not supposed to write about the Enneagram. The monks were not supposed to write about it. They were only supposed to teach it. You have any ideas why that is? Why would they covenant with themselves not to write about it, but only to teach it? If you write about it, it gets outside your jurisdiction or however you want to say that. Yeah. It's out there, then somebody else could teach it. Yeah. Once you write about a thing, it loses its context, and it can be used in any number of ways. And that's exactly what has happened. The worry of the monks throughout the ages was that if they started writing about it, it would become commercialized. There is an Enneagram industry today. Uh, That it would become a parlor game. I'm a nine, you're a six, ha ha ha. And become a flippant uh, self-identifying thing or other identifying thing that it would become another diagnostic tool in a world full of diagnostic tools. And so the monks thought it best, if it is a spiritual formation tool, for it to be taught by people who have some depth of spirituality about them. And so, what I want to say from the beginning tonight is that the Enneagram can be used in a lot of different ways, just like a shovel or a screwdriver or a computer can be used in a lot of different ways. It can be used for uh, self-growth. And if so, that's okay. There's, that's not wrong. There's value in that. We need more self-growth. It can be used for self-knowledge. It can be used for marriage enrichment. It can be used for a healthier work environment. All of those things are good and right, and no one's against any of those. But at its heart, the Enneagram is a tool of spiritual formation that is meant to transform our lives. And any other way of looking at it cheapens what it was intended to be. So one of the things that I invite you to do in in these weeks is not to look at this as a diagnostic personality test. Does that make sense? But to look at this as an ancient tool of spiritual formation that tells us more about who God is, tells us more about who we are, and teaches us how to love our neighbor a little better. Does that make sense? Can y'all see the difference there? Can y'all see the concern of the ancient monks and how they've lived into it? I know this because I heard Richard Rohr say it. And he said that he argued with himself about writing this book and in some way felt like he betrayed his tradition. And yet the thing was already out there and he felt like the only way to recover people who were writing about the Enneagram was for him to write about the Enneagram. As we move forward in these months, I do want you to know what I'm using. Uh, Three books I would recommend to you. One is called The Road Back to You. This is what we kind of used as an introduction of the Enneagram to Second Baptist a couple of years ago by Ian Crone and Suzanne Stabile. It's a great introduction to the Enneagram. If you just want to dip your toe in the shallow end, have a basic introduction of what the Enneagram is, this is a great place to start. It's a well-written book, it's funny, it's humorous, uh, and I think it captures the spirit of all the numbers really well. The second one is a follow-up, I bet you haven't seen, written by Suzanne Stabile herself, called The Path Between Us. It's more about how the numbers interrelate, what it's like for a nine to be married to a six, or for uh, a boss who's a one to be working with uh, Yeah, a secretary who's a four, those kinds of things. How we relate with kids, parent, child, uh, spouses, work relationships, how the numbers interrelate. 
If you want a deep dive in the spiritual formation component of the Enneagram, I would recommend Richard Rohr's book. And also you can YouTube. It's a 16-hour lecture uh, broken up in certain parts uh, that he did at a um, Benedictine University in California several years ago on the Enneagram. So I'm kind of, I put all that in a pot and my own special seasoning and we'll see what it tastes like. But I wanted y'all to know of those resources before we moved on anymore. Have y'all seen Lord of the Rings? Oh yeah. All right. Tell about the ring. What is the ring? For those of you who've seen the movie. All right, it's a symbol of power. <coughs> when you put the ring on your finger, what happens? It takes over your life. Okay. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Generally bad. Okay. It's, it's, it's a powerful thing. If you have the ring, you have power. And so people are after the ring. But the moment you put the ring on your finger, it begins to consume you and absorb the entirety of your identity. What I would invite you to consider is that whatever number you are on the Enneagram is your ring. It is what you're good at. It is your gift. It is how you've made it in this world up to this point. It is what comes naturally to you. So naturally to you, you don't even have to think about it. You just do it. It flows out of who you are. It's your energy. And that very light is also your shadow. Your, your gift is your curse and your curse is your gift. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it, except to mature in it, to name it for what it is and grow up and recognize it. Uh, naming a thing causes it to lose some of its power. And so, what I would ask you to consider in these days is your gift, your basic life posture, and the strengths of that, and the weaknesses of that. Evil does not come to us, sin does not come to us or undisguised with a neon sign saying, I'm sinful, come enjoy me. I'm evil, try me out. Evil comes to us disguised as the light. And the things that grip our souls and control us are oftentimes the things that we, we loved all the way through. And yet that, those are the most dangerous sins in our life. By the way, one of the things we'll talk about is in this Enneagram is what gave rise to the tradition of the seven deadly sins. Uh, two of the sins got lost along the way and we'll talk about why. But the Enneagram describes kinds of people with basic postures, all of which have a corresponding sin, a deadly sin. And so, no number is better than any other number except for nines. We're the best. I argue with that. An eight would. <laughs> um, every number has a strength, a gift from the heavens, a gift that makes Second Baptist a better church, and every number has a weakness that drives everybody around you crazy. And in large part, it's the same thing. Okay, But I want you to see the subtlety of evil. We as a culture are not good at this. We like the grandiose. We appreciate what's big and uh, luminary. But evil comes to us disguised in subtle ways. Think about angels of light and that sort of stuff. We're going to have to be wise about our own souls. We're going to have to tell the truth about our own energies. We're going to have to do some reckoning with our own stories. Uh, to borrow a phrase from an ancient German poet, Rilke, unless you tame your demons, you will never know your angels. Unless you tame your demons, you will never know your angels. And we are called to be people who discern the spirits. The spirits of our times, other people's spirits, our own spirits, how many times do you stop and think, why did I really do that? Why did I really feel that? 
Um, a few years ago, I was coaching Paxton's flag football team. I was the coach. He was the quarterback. And we were in the heat of battle in this flag football game. And I had been hard on him that day. And he threw a pass, and it wasn't where it should have been. And the moment he threw it, he knew it. And who he is as a person, he, before the ball hit the ground, he turned and looked at me. And it broke my heart. And I started thinking about why that impacted me so much. And I think it's rooted in a lot of uh, my relationship with my own dad. And how those cycles continue because we live out of the paradigms we see. Sometimes in response to those paradigms. Sometimes it's the opposite. But sometimes we just l go with the flow that we've always known. Why do you feel certain ways? Why do you do certain things? Why do you not do certain things? Why do you avoid certain things? Why do you run like the dickens away from some things? Why do sevens run away from pain? They cannot handle pain. They will not handle pain. They will run from pain because life's about having a good time. The moment you start crying around them, they'll try to pep you up. It's not that bad. Or they'll run right out of the room. Why? Why are sixes so afraid? Where did that primal fear come from? Why are ones hell-bent on perfection for themselves and for everybody else around them? Where does that come from? Why, as a nine, can I tell y'all what every one of you in this room are thinking? I just don't know what I think. <laughs> it's a, that's a horrible... Being a nine's horrible. By the way, if you walk out of this room feeling good about your gift, I probably have not done my job well. Uh, this, this is hard, and part of it is I'm going to try to make fun of everybody in this room, including myself, uh, because that's about the only way you can make it through it. Uh, there's, when you really tell the truth about yourself, there's some hard things. And so let's just name that from the beginning as well. Don't, don't run away from that, especially if you're a seven. All right? Sit in it. Explore it. Why is that? Um... It's difficult to see yourself. I once heard a preacher say, the hardest thing for my two eyes to see is my own face. The hardest thing for my two eyes to see is my own face. And I think that's probably true at the level of the soul as well. So part of what the Enneagram demands of us is for our eyes to kind of crawl out of us and turn around and look at our own souls. And that's, that's hard because you often see it. Um, the Enneagram is not about behavior necessarily. It's about your energy, your disposition as a person. It's really about what's under those energies. I mean, excuse me, under those behaviors. Every person on this Enneagram washes dishes, but they do it for nine different reasons. They do it for nine different causes and purposes. And yet it's hard to define energies, and so oftentimes we'll talk about behaviors. But don't think about the Enneagram at the level of behavior. Think about the Enneagram at a deeper level of motivation, of basic life posture, of what makes us do and feel and run from things. Okay? And yet we can only see being in the doing. So I'm going to talk about doing a lot. I'm going to talk about what these numbers do. Richard Rohr says he can tell numbers oftentimes by body posture. He can, he can tell how people walk into a room and how people respond or don't respond to people who walk in the room. He can tell how you sit. He can tell by how loud you talk or how loud you talk. Um, because our, of our doing is evidence of our being. But you have to be careful because this is not just about what you do. This is about what makes you who you are and why you do what you do. So, every one of these numbers has a shadow. 
even as they all have a light. The light causes the shadow. And you cannot get rid of your shadow. That has come hard for me because I thought I would kind of change my number, you know, and grow out of it. What Richard Rohr says is a one will attack their shadow in a one way and therefore double their oneness. A nine will attack their shadow in a nine way because that's all we know. And therefore, we double. when we try to attack our shadow, we just become more of what we already were, and the shadow darkens and doubles. You cannot do much about your shadow except confess it and name it and mature in it. Does that come hard for you? How does that feel? How do you, what do you feel when I say you can't do anything about your shadow? It's not good. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You you wanna you wanna feel like you can control it. We make it through life with our defense mechanisms, and the Enneagram sweeps all those defense mechanisms away. So we have to deal with our naked souls. Kind of like it takes the power away from what it gave the number gave you in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I don't even understand what I just said. Well, it was genius. It was genius. Well, I, just, I am a genius. Yeah. <clears throat> Even the good things that we do can be born of the worst motives. Right? Sometimes I do the right thing, but I have a god-awful attitude about it. Sometimes I do the right thing for the worst reasons. And so, it's not just about learning to do better. It's about recognizing the, the center out of which we live our lives. I would also say, suggest to you today, that too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Part of what makes each number unique is because of the unique light that it shines with and the unique shadow that corresponds with it. But too much of that thing, too much of that virtue becomes a vice. I want you to think about this with me. We call nines, well let's just do this with each one. We call nines peacemakers. Peace is a good thing, right? Yes. <laughs> That's one of the attitudes. That's a good thing. When can peacemaking become bad? Ah. Uh, this has been the hardest thing for me. Um, I have pastored churches. You might have guessed they're full of different kinds of people. They think different ways. They think pastors, they, they understand pastors differently. They understand the church differently. And so I was able to hold all that together because I just made everybody happy. I, I, I knew what they thought and 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 I could just hold everything together. I was a peacemaker. But in reality, I was a peacekeeper. And what I would never do is speak my truth so that it upset the status quo of the group and caused everybody to grow, including me. Peacemaking is a wonderful thing until you're unwilling to face conflict that is necessary, like a, like a cross or something. Ones are perfectionists, or you could call them reformers. Shinists. That's a good thing, right? Until what? <laughs> you, you discover there's not much in this world that's perfect, including yourself. And that maybe that's the hardest one. Everybody on this circle fails right? When a one fails, <clears throat> it sends them to a dark place. Twos are helpers. They're the people who show up and clean your house when you're grieving. They bring you pies and mow your yard and whatever needs to be done, whatever you need, 
The helper is engaged with what you need. They, their identity comes from what you need. That's good. Like there's gospel in that. Until they become a nuisance. Uh, yeah, you do. Or they do. How many of us have not gotten tired of somebody else's help? Help. Or when that help isn't reciprocated. When, when twos help and help and help and help and then don't feel like you help them, the claws come out. And their identity comes... They don't have self-identity. Their identity is rooted in what you need. And so even if you don't need anything, they might create something that you need so that they know who they are. Threes... Achievers. achievers. <laughs> who said that? Ah. Sam's people. They, their identity is based on doing. They believe you should do your best. You should be achievers. Uh, go with gusto. Give it your best shot. And that's good. I say that to my kids all the time. Do your best. Come on, you're better than that. Pick it up. And that's good. Until you're nothing more than your resume or until you experience failure. When a three fails, they cannot deal with it. They will explain it away or blame it away, but they just can't deal with failure. Do they give up? Um, they may give up or they may say, I wasn't really trying. Or they may do a different thing. Uh, they can respond in any number of ways. But, but the visceral impact is that they failed and their identity was based on achievement. One of the things we're going to talk about, by the way, is that it's not just people who can be characterized by the Enneagram, but cultures and even countries can be characterized by the Enneagram. Richard Rohr says that three, threes hide in America because America is a three country. You think about how we talk about citizenship. What are the adjectives that we use to talk about citizenship? We want anybody who will be a productive, productive citizen. We want you to do something. Because our value is in what you do. If you don't do anything, we don't want you. First thing you do when you meet somebody is ask them what they do. What you do. This is ingrained in our culture. Richard Rohr says threes are drowning in North America. <clears throat> Fours, what are they? I forgot the title. I wasn't going to do this tonight. Individualists. These are the people who are often the best artists. They seek to stand out. They believe they are unique. That, that notion comes easy to them. And whereas nines want to go with the crowd and fit in and don't want attention, fours are a little upset if when they walked in the room everybody didn't turn and say, John Doe's here. That's, that's okay. We, we are all unique. And that's a virtue until... Un, until you realize you're not unique. And that's a hard pill to swallow. You're not unique. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you can't see anything outside of your own ego. Five, investigators. These are the people who think. They, they live their life, they think their way through life. If you ask them, what are you feeling? They will tell you what they are thinking because that's, that's, they don't know what they're feeling. That's good. We are called to love God with our minds until what? I didn't, I missed that. Until your feelings come out anyway. Yeah, or until, you know, life isn't just brain. <laughs> We're whole people, right? 
we, we have emotions. That's part of our humanity. We have hearts. We have souls. And to only live here is to miss out on a lot of your humanity. We're bodied people. Our bodies matter. Sixes. Loyalists. These are the people who uh, find their meaning. They're, they're, they interpret reality through their authorities. They don't trust their own authority, and so they need authorities. They will be loyal to institutions. These are the people who you love to have at church because if you say we're going to do this on a Thursday night at 6.30, they will be there on a Thursday night at 6.30. They're loyal, but they need external authority. That might be a church. It might be a nation. It may be a family. It may be a father-mother figure. They are loyal because they need an external authority in their life. And that's good. Until... uh, Until you have the wrong authority. In the trials after World War II, the, the Nazi war crime trials... Did, did the argument, I only did my duty, work for the Nazi soldiers? And why? Um, if you're loyal to the wrong authority, you create incredible injustice. When do you know to break from that authority and do a new thing? That's what they struggle with. Sevens. What are they? Do what? Adventurers. What? I'm making up words. Yeah. Enthusiasts. These are the people... These are the people who think life is about having a good time. And they move from adrenaline high to adrenaline high to adrenaline high. Before they're done with one fun thing... They are thinking about the next fun thing. I, I, I could be wrong. They tell us not to do this, but I'm still going to do it. I think Truett's a seven. If he, if he has friends over three nights in a row, on that fourth night, when we say no one's coming over tonight except us, he will throw a fit and ask why he never gets to have any fun. Um, and he might be he may just be a kid they say I I have heard with the Enneagram you should think of yourself as a as what you were when you were 21 because it's it's before you've learned to have all your defenses up and when you're kind of figuring out who you are at a very um, simple level maybe there's some truth to that Uh, but that's illustrative of how a seven feels but with pain they will avoid their pain. They will avoid your pain. They will avoid any pain because it doesn't fit into their narrative of adventure and fun and joy. And eights. I work with one of these. Challengers. <laughs> That's exactly right. Liz is a nine and I'm a nine. And we're who Chris spends most of his time with. Is that... um, Well, I won't even go there tonight. (laughs) This has helped me a lot with Chris Ellis, by the way. Um, These are people who find their meaning by challenging other, other ideas. They often come as forceful people. If they hear an argument, they won't go with the flow of the argument. They'll they'll. They're natural devil's advocate people. They're good leaders. They see a thing, they see what needs to be done, and they just do it. They may not go through the proper channels to do it. They may contact the committee afterwards and say, was it okay that I did that? Um, But they will get a thing done. Um, A lot of people would think this is more of a feminine energy And so a lot of people don't know what to do with two males. And a lot of people think this is male energy. And so we don't know what to do with female eights except call them a name. 
Um, I'll leave that there. Um, all of this to say, all of these are good. All of these have shadows. And too much of a good thing is not a good thing. The goal is maybe a little more balance. Maybe the goal is to begin to include all of these numbers in who we are. I'll tell you more about this later, but the Sufi Muslims said that if you put all this together, you could see the face of God. Um, here's what I want to hammer home tonight. We live into our gifts because they are our gifts. We over-identify with them because that's what we're good at. It's what people praised us for. It's what our own souls confirmed in us. You're good at that. Um, our parents praised us. Our friends praised us. Our spouses live with us because of that. They married us because of that and in spite of that. And so we over-identify with our gifts. We are consumed by our gifts. We are blinded by our lights. And so the gifts inherently become our problem because we can't step outside of our gift. Does that make sense? That doesn't make the gift bad. It just demands that we grow up and mature with that gift. Um, one writer I heard compared our gift, our number, to white gas. It makes our car run hard and well for a while, but even while it's running, it's destroying it. Your gift is like white gas. It makes the car go strong and fast for a while, but even in so doing, it's destroying it. The Enneagram will subvert you before it transforms you because we're deeply attached to our, our false self. We're deeply attached to our number. We're deeply attached to our gift. And we don't really want to tell the truth about it. Our identity is caught up in this. And it's why using this as a personality test cheapens it. Because this demands some deep soul work that most of us don't have the compunction to do unless we feel like God is calling us to do it. Unless we feel like love for neighbor is compelling us to do it. Unless we feel like our own prayer life is summoning us deep into our souls to think about our gifts and our shadows. If we only use this as a self-help tool, then we still have no reference outside the self. Think about that. If you are deeply ingrained as a seven, it's the way you see the world. It's the way you always see the world. It's what comes easy to you. It's what comes natural to you. Then how can you find redemption as a seven? Only if you have a referent outside of yourself. It starts with self-knowledge. But you're stuck here. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because that's all you've ever been. Unless there is some redemptive force outside of yourself that draws you out. And it's why I want to use the Enneagram as a tool of spiritual formation, not just um, work collaboration or family systems and that kind of stuff. Most of our lives, we've been told there are good guys and bad guys. Westerns. You've got a good guy and a bad guy. And it's clear. You know who the good guy is. And you know who the bad guy is. Superhero movies. You've got a hero and a villain. And oftentimes, the villain is not even human. Right? Which makes it easy to hate them and loathe them and you don't feel so bad when you kill them. The Enneagram says it's messier than that. And that in you honestly lives both a sinner and a saint. 
There are good guys and bad guys in each of us. Good gals and bad gals in each of us. And how we live into that largely depends upon our maturity and the level of soul work we're willing to do. But the Enneagram does it. Where are the saints here? And where are the sinners here? It's one big circle. And so we all have things to celebrate and thank God for and we all have things to confess. Um, life gets messy in the Enneagram. We'll talk about that a little more later. In the end, though, God doesn't waste your sin. God uses it. God redeems it as a way of saving your soul, as a way of teaching you about yourself, as a way of grounding you as a person, as a way of giving you perspective in light of the whole, God redeems your sin. God does not waste it. So tonight, as we... Well, first of all, let me pause. What questions do you have? It will be much more fun when we're diving into the numbers and we're making fun of each other. Okay? When I'm making fun of you, that will be fun. But, but some things need to be said before things are said. What don't you understand? What don't you like? Yes, sir. Why did you start with nine? Um, <laughs> because that's what I am. Actually, in all, you know, there's a lot of questions with this. Why nine? Why aren't there 12 Enneagram types? Why not 15? Why not 21? Why not a thousand and a gazillion. Why, why nine? Um, in all of the Enneagram circles, it's drawn this way. Um, one, of the, one of the explanations I've heard is because as a, as a nine, it's very, it comes very organically to me to put my, shoes, my, my feet in someone else's shoes. And so, at any given moment, I can be any one of these things. Whatever, whatever keeps the stability of this room. If someone in this room was uh, hindering the equilibrium of the room and making everybody uncomfortable, I might confront them and say, sit down and be quiet. But that would come hard for me. But essentially what I care about is the equilibrium of this room. And so whatever that moment demands of me, that's what I do. But my motive is just keeping the peace. I don't want anybody mad. Does that make sense? And so some people say the nine is at the top because it can look like any number of these things. And the th it's, it's very similar to the three in that way. The three is a chameleon. But the three does it out of self-identity. I know who I am when I achieve and with whatever group I'm in. The nine does it other-orientedly. I just want to keep the peace of the room. You see what I'm saying? So in this way, a nine and a three are very similar, but their motives, their energies are different. They come from different places. Okay? That's the best explanation I have for why nine's at the top. You said earlier, <clears throat> consider yourself as to be considered when you're in your 20s. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in age that can change some, to some extent? I mean, I can yeah. look at mine, and I know it's changed drastically. I'm mm -hmm. still there, but not as much. Yeah. It may be priorities in life have something to do with that. I think so. I think life changes. This is dynamic. We're going to talk about wings. So each number is surrounded by wings. It's how you function. If you, if you didn't have a wing, you couldn't fly. You would just sink in your number. You'd be too much of one thing. And so your wings, whatever they are, they help you move and be in this world. But also, every number has a place that they go in times of comfort and peace and where they go in times of deep stress. As a nine... 
I go to six when I'm in stress. Worst case scenario, this is bad. I live in fear. When I'm at peace, I go to three. <laughs> I'm bearing my soul a little more than I thought, but I think that's the only way that I can be a pastor because I'm so very introverted. And the only way that I'm able to have an ounce of personality about me and lead and shake hands on a Sunday morning is I have a little bit of three in me when, I, when I'm in a good place. So it, it is a dynamic thing. But your, your number is your, your deep soul orientation. But it is dynamic and it morphs. I think it can morph with life stage. I think it might morph if you're dancing with a different number. I think it might morph if you're in a place of stress or if you're in a place of peace. So yeah, I don't, I don't want you to feel like if you're an eight, you're a challenger and only a challenger and nothing more than a challenger. So. And some of it is our maturation as people. A healthy five looks totally different than an unhealthy five. You, could, you can stomach a healthy five. <laughs> what does an unhealthy five look like? <laughs> <laughs> You're referencing it. <laughs> uh, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. It's somebody that can't get out of their brains. They're consumed with data. Um, but are utterly unable to say what they feel or to hear what anybody else is feeling in a moment. They can't process feelings, an unhealthy five can't, because they only live in brain space. Yeah. No, it's specific to nines, and we'll talk about that. There are, there are, the numbers go to specific numbers in times of stress and in times of uh, comfort and peace. Um, I will say this. There is debate amongst Enneagram scholars as to how the wings function. <clears throat> There's even differences in these two authors, um, Rohr and Suzanne Stabile. Richard Rohr says that if you're a seven, both six and eight are wings, and they function like the wings of a bird. Unless they're both working, you can't fly. And so he sees the wings working in tandem with each other. Suzanne Stabile says you can be a seven and have a strong six wing and a nearly non-existent eight one. Um, I think she would say that as you mature as a seven, you develop your eight wing, or you develop your six wing, uh, but that comes later. So I think, that, I think they're saying the same thing, but they go about it different ways in, in terms of how the wings function. But each number has wings, and each number has places they go in peace, and places they go in stress. I heard you say initially or early on that if you're a nine, you're a nine forever. You're, it's not going to change. Mm -hmm. But I hear you in more recent <coughs> statements talking that you can change from a yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think you can change the core orientation of whatever number you are. 
I only think you can mature in that and maybe see the wisdom of some of these other numbers and begin to incorporate them. But that will not change your number. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that. This basic primal energy about you. Where, you. where your life force comes from. What orients you. But I do think you can mature. And that is a form of change. Growth is a form of change. But it doesn't alter that basic orientation. I don't, it may not be something you want to talk about tonight, but I don't get reformers and perfectionists, and maybe I don't need to, do I? Yeah. I mean, the others seem to fit the second word you put with them, but I don't. And I'm fine if you don't even answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me get to that as we get to it. I'm, I'm going to try to dive deep into... Let me, let me say this very briefly, and we'll tie it up tonight. <coughs> the Enneagram, the nine numbers, can be broken up into three triads. Eight nines and ones are gut people. And what that means is they approach life viscerally. They feel it. Um... Nines are the pure number, eights are the excessive number, ones are the reactive number. In some ways they're the opposite of eights. Just briefly to say they want, they want to redeem anything that's broken in this world and strive for perfection. Okay, And they hold themselves to high, high standards usually, if, they're, if they are even mature they'll do that. Immature people will hold, immature ones will hold you to high standards. Uh, twos, threes, and fours are heart people. They approach life emotionally, they lead emotionally. It's their feeling that guides them. Five, six, and sevens are brain people, mind people. They think first. <clears throat> uh, they tend to mistrust emotions. They think emotions can deceive you um, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Are your wings always adjacent numbers? Yes. Your wings are always adjacent. Um, and we'll talk more about that next week, uh, how that works. So next week I'll tell you a little bit about the history of the Enneagram. I think that's important. And we'll dive into more big picture things like we're talking about tonight. Uh, this doesn't even make sense anymore, does it? Um, we'll talk more big picture. We'll talk about the triads a little more. And from there, we'll begin to dig into the individual numbers. Can we do one piece of soul work tonight? Uh, actually, two. I want to read you a Nowen quote, Henry Nowen. <coughs> we are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child of a loving creator. Can I say that one more time? I, I claim this oftentimes, uh, and I think this quote has saved my soul in some ways. We are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child of a loving Creator. 
and one more piece of wisdom from someone we all trust. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you've truly stated. He is one and there is no one beside him to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one ventured to ask him any more questions. Did you notice in these commands, we say them so much because I think they're so dang important and I worry that we lose it because we say it so much. God, can you see God in this? And can you see the way you relate with God in this? By the way, if you're a one How does grace feel? If you're a three, an achiever, how does grace feel? This has something to do with the way we see God. And love your neighbor, it has something to do with the way you you love and don't love the people around you. And then yourself. I don't think we think about that enough. You are in the command. You are commanded to love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I believe it's impossible for someone who does not love their own soul, someone who's disconnected from their own soul, to love anybody else. And if they do, they will smother them or hurt them or fly off the handle at them or or over-identify with them all because they have no sense of self, of their own soul. One of the ways we love God, one of the ways we love people, is to do our own soul work. Most of the time when I've hurt people, it's not because I intended to hurt them. It's because I hadn't done my own soul work. And I lived out of lesser than who I was. Or I lived out of the truth of who I was in that moment. So, You see the triads, how we love God. And I'll leave you with this. The man says, yeah, Jesus, you're right. I kind of chuckle at that. And then Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Why didn't Jesus say, welcome to the kingdom of God, you're in? Why did he say you are not far? from the kingdom of God. Could it be because he understood but he wasn't doing mm. Maybe. That's where I am. But I want you to wrestle with that. As we go, let us not be far from the kingdom. Let's be kingdom people. And that demands we tell the truth about ourselves. I hope that you'll read. I hope that you'll do your own research. Come next week, we'll dive in again, and then we'll look into the individual numbers. Is there any one of those books that you would prefer we do some reading? I, I would recommend this first one, uh, The Road Back to You. Uh, it's a great read. I, I did not think this one was as good. I'll just be candid with you about that. Uh, maybe it's because this I came with such high expectations because I thought this was so good. Uh, and this is more of a deeper dive uh, in the spirituality of the Enneagram. So I would, if you're a beginner, this is the best place to jump in. 
Peace be with you as you go. We are not far from the kingdom of God.